You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Mary Robinette Kowal. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. And you've tuned in to a special showcase episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With... 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great opportunity to sit down with people who have persevered to become the successes that Dave and I wish we were. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And a genuine privilege it is. Brian, let me let me, let me me give you the lowdown on today's guest host. Lay it on me. All right, Brad, here it is. Now, our guest host has achieved so many things and has been recognized for them in so many different ways. Puppeteer, fictioneer, vocal performer, fashionista of the Regency Posse, uh, Hugo's, Campbell's, Unima USA citations. But Brian, do you know what her first creative endeavor was? I know you're going to tell me. You know I am. As a, ch- get the, as a child, she programmed her name using IBM punch cards. Oh, my God. Yes, that's right. Code Geeks, <laughs> she is one of us. Her, <laughs> her father was a programmer for IBM. And in addition to these nascent programming efforts, her first artistic medium for drawing was IBM computer punch cards. Now, interestingly, her father also played the fiddle and the musical saw. So diverse skills and passions are kind of hardwired into our guest host's DNA. Uh, Her mother was an arts administrator who would send our guest host to any class on any topic that interested her. So both of her parents strongly supported her artistic interests. Now, it's no surprise that as a child, she wanted to do everything. And in high school, she got involved with a puppetry troupe at a friend's church. And she had a lot of fun doing it, but understandably, always considered it a hobby, never a career. Now, later in college, she had cobbled together this intriguing major mashup of art with a, a minor in theater, right, Bri? Huh? Minor oh, in yeah. yeah. And speech <laughs> all worked in there. Um, now, puppetry was still a passion. So when she got the chance to be the puppeteer for the huge man-eating plant in Little Shop of Horrors, she was all over that. At one fateful performance, a professional puppeteer was in the audience. Now, introductions were made and an internship came to pass, at the conclusion of which our guest host was making a substantial revenue. This led in turn to another internship at the prestigious Center for Puppetry Arts. Now, (laughs) our guest host always intended to go back and finish up that college degree, but man, it just didn't happen. You know, P.E., that's all she needed was P.E., and... and just didn't happen. And that and that's awesome because, as it turns out, she didn't need it. Now, she has worked as a professional puppeteer since 1989, performing for the Center for Puppetry Arts, Jim Henson Productions. Uh, it's also said numerous fantasy conventions has seen her puppeteer performances. Uh, she even launched her own production company, Other Hand Productions. Puppetry even gave her her first international credits when she worked in Iceland on the children's television show Lazy Town for two seasons. Uh, Her work has received two Unima USA citations for excellence, which is the highest award an American puppeteer can achieve. However, 
In spite of her passion and achievement in the field, puppetry is not her only path of artistic expression. She has distinguished herself as an artistic visionary, serving as the artistic director for Shimmer magazine in 2006 and later for the exalted Weird Tales in 2010. Now, 2006, 2010, there's about four or five years in there. There's a whole lot going on. For example, somewhere in that time, her brother moved to China, taking our guest host's niece and nephew with him across the Pacific Ocean. And in an effort to stay connected, she started writing a serialized story, sending it to them in installments. And with each installment, our guest host came to discover that she had something more than just a cute story here. Outlines followed, and ultimately the installments were gathered together to become what someday might possibly become a novel. Now, friends, the popular mythology would have you believe that this was our guest host's first novel. But we have it on good authority that the true first novel was an adventure tale featuring her favorite D&D character set in a story world reminiscent of a cross between the first edition Battlestar Galactica with Lauren Green and the first edition A-Team with Mr. T. Now, inside sources have led us to believe that the real reason she accepted her recent tour on a cruise ship was to toss this trunked novel over the railing in a concrete box over the deepest waters of the Caribbean. You know, first novels give way to next novels and more stories and explorations into the craft. She attended the Orson Scott Carr Literary Boot Camp in 2005 and joined the Codex Writers Community and continues to be a member there. Uh, she's had stories nominated for Nebulas and Hugos, served as the secretary and then the vice president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, Don't her archive to the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections at Northern Illinois University, published a collection of short stories titled Scenting the Dark, released her debut novel, Shades of Milk and Honey, which, by the way, was nominated for the 2010 Nebula Award for Best Novel. In 2011, she won the Best Short Story Hugo for her short story For Want of a Nail, and... She was invited to be a full-time cast member of the Remarkable Writing Excuses podcast. Her fiction has appeared in, oh my goodness, Tailbones Magazine, Strange Horizons, Asimov Science Fiction, Apex Magazine, Clark's World, numerous years best anthologies, uh, also in John Joseph Adams' The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, as well as his recently released The Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination. Now, in addition to Shades of Milk and Honey, Glamour and Glass and Without a Summer have both appeared on bookshelves, and she's currently working on book four, Valor and Vanity, even as we speak. Now, through all of this, she's been actively expanding her repertoire as a vocal performer and narrator, voicing audiobooks for the likes of John Scalzi and Cory Doctorow. Brian? Yeah. She's met Sting. Now, oh, I, and the, the, oh the, the musician, not the Middle Earth short sword. Um, yes. and, and she taught him lyrics to a song. Uh, she's, she's created a Jane Austen spell check dictionary. She built a blood squirting chair for a production of Rag and Bone. Uh, and she has found the secret to marital bliss, which is very simple. Whichever spouse is washing the dishes, they receive a back rub from the other spouse. Bam! 
Instantly divorce divorce rates drop all over the country. Uh, right. If she was ever to be re reincarnated as a Cthulhu character, it would be Nylar Hotep. And if she could be a superhero, it would be Spider-Man because clinging to walls and web slinging would be the perfect complement to her puppetry endeavors. I love it. I do too. Absolutely. That's awesome. <laughs> so dear friends, please join me in welcoming to the big chair here at the round table, Mary Robinette Kowal. Mary I, I can only imagine the epic mayhem that is your daily schedule. So we are deeply grateful for you making the time uh, to, to share your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Well, you did interrupt my uh, my evening of watching Dancing with the Stars, but I forgive oh, you for that. You are. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You are DVRing that bad boy, right? Oh, oh yes. Okay, friends, <laughs> no tweets to spoil this because this is apparently very important. <laughs> oh, very cool. Mary, did I miss anything uh, of, of import or, or are there any egregious errors that need to be corrected from that? I am astonished by the depths of your stalkering. That is, I think, the most epic introduction I have ever had. Oh, I, I am I am honored by your by your grace. Thank you. Very good. I'm glad. Well, let's let that's that's enough of me talking. Let's let's get to you talking. Um, let's start our 20 minutes with uh, uh, with Mary Robinette Kowal, and I'm just going to start our timer here which we will, of course, ignore, but that's just yeah. how we roll. Um, <laughs> right. Mary, driving home today, uh, I was listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, and there was a quote from uh, Sean Williams, who was quoting somebody else, that said that uh, the more you learn about writing, the harder it becomes. And that seems to just fly in the face of, of everything that we've learned through our lives, that as you learn stuff, it gets easier, not harder. And, and with Brian and I just entering into our cycle of, of being writers, uh, I was wondering, could you wax philosophic a little bit on that quote? And, and what do you think that means? Well, I, uh, that's a quote I completely agree with and, and agree with it across the board. Uh, in in pretty much every endeavor that I've I've gone through, the reason is because there's a couple of things going on. On the most basic level, as a writer, when you first start off, when you're doing anything like writing or painting, you you're working on instinct, and a lot of times you don't know what it is that you're aiming for, so you're just doing it for pleasure, for the the, the physical responses that that are evoked in you by by just putting words on the paper or paint on the page. When you learn something then it becomes a conscious effort. It's like, okay, so I know that I am now trying to, to do this thing. It's like if you're going for a walk in the woods and you don't have a particular destination, then, you know, it's just a pleasant walk in the woods. If you're trying to be an Olympic medalist, that walk in the woods is something that suddenly becomes a thing that you are doing with purpose and intention, and that takes more effort. Okay. So, so for me, every time I learn something, um, like right after Scott Card's literary boot camp, that was one of the hardest years for writing for me because I was having to consciously use all of these new tools, and it took a while to internalize them. With puppetry, I was fortunate that I had had training in that. Like one of the things that they teach us to do is to work on a technique until you can internalize it enough that you can just focus on the art part. Okay. Um, so, so as you go through the process of learning, each time you learn something, you are learning a more complicated thing that you then have to internalize. 
So there's more choices that you can, can draw from in, in the execution of what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. And, and it's also more refined technique. You know, it's, it's very easy to go from, um, no, you hold a paintbrush like this to you hold a paintbrush like that. You know, there's, it's gripping it in your fist versus in your fingers. Those are very simple. That's a very simple change to make. But when you start going from uh, needing to paint with the entire brush to the tip, that takes a lot more fine motor control. The same thing with writing. You know, it's like, okay, uh, your sentences need to have a period. That's a very simple concept to grasp, and it's very simple to internalize. Uh, plot structure is a very complex thing to understand and internalize. And then, you know, once you start trying to get those pieces in, every time you learn something new, once you've got plot structure internalized, then there's, you know, there's some new additional layer that is even more complex that you have to figure out, okay, well, how does that work? Okay, yeah. I feel like it should always be getting harder. Do you think that there's ever a time where you get to the point where you might over-formulate and lose that spark of spontaneity that comes from instinct? Well, um, yes. I do think that you can overthink things. But going back to my, my puppetry analogy, there was a day when my instructor literally had me walk a puppet around the table for a good half an hour. And then when I finished doing that, I walked it around the table the other direction for another half an hour. And the point was that he wanted me to stop thinking about the technique. Mm, right. And so that I was just thinking about the art. And I do think that if you're sitting there writing and you are thinking about technique, that you aren't working on an instinctual level. But I also think that you can learn those techniques to the point that they are so internalized that you can get back to working on instinct. You know, the violinist Joshua Bell has flawless technique. And when he's playing, he's not thinking about his technique. He's thinking about the performance. And I think it's the same thing for writers. You have to, you know, and I practice individual techniques so mm-hmm. that when I'm working on the, the stories that I don't have to be thinking about them. Sure. Excellent. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Now, Mary, I've had several friends, and actually in researching for, for this discussion, uh, uh, even you've mentioned that from time to time, you, you get into this zone, uh, the writing zone, where the, where the words just flow. Oh my God, you, there, there's no stopping them. And the next thing you know, you've cranked out five, 10, 15,000 words in a few sittings. And other times the words don't come as, as quickly and as gracefully, perhaps. What's the difference between one and the other. Obviously, we're all striving for that perfect zone of, of massive word counts and just effortless flow of, of story and character and expression. What is the distinction of the difference? How can we, how can we strive more towards those, those effortless flows of zone writing as opposed to the, the more, uh, I don't want to say arduous, but... Yeah, it is, it is arduous. <laughs> okay, all right. Then yeah, we'll use that word. You know, I, if, if I had the answer to that, boy, my life would be so much easier. I, I know that when, that there are some factors that I have control of that can make writing go easier for me. And one of those is, uh, and, and I also want to preface this with saying that this works for me. Um, and that I think that every writer is wired differently. So there are some people who are going to listen to this and say that it's complete crazy talk. For me... I write better and faster when I know where the story is going. When I am emotionally invested in the character and the journey that they're on, things flow faster because 
I know what decisions my character would make in any given setting. So even if I'm doing a seat of the pants thing, if I understand what decision my character would make, it's as easy for me to make it as it would be making a decision in real life. And, and so things can just flow from that. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Mary Robinette Koal after this brief promotional break. Hey you, stop hiding behind that sofa. Come out from back there. Your sofa wants to talk to you, wants to play footsie with your mind. Listen to it, relax, let it in. Starship Sofa, the first podcast ever to win a Hugo Award with weekly stories from the world's best authors, Michael Moorcock, Peter Watts, Joe Haldeman, Peter F. Hamilton, and many, many, many more. With news and reviews and interviews. Bradbury, Pohl, Wolf, and Mievel, the sofas chewed the fat with them all. Facts and fictions, articles and particles. Oh, why aren't you listening? StarshipSofa.com your best science fictional fix this side of the coffee table. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Mary Robinette Koal. Can we break that down even maybe a little more specifically, just in terms of, and, and I'm sure you've run into this situation where you run into a scene, things seem a little wishy-washy. Uh, uh, you're, you're ambivalent in terms of your writing. The direction is not clear. What do you do? Well, let me clarify that there are two different things for me. Okay. One thing is that when I am working on a scene, I don't worry about language. I do a language pass later. Okay. Um, because I feel like, and this is, again, you know, mileage varies greatly. Um, <laughs> Patrick Rothfuss has to get each word exactly right before he moves on to the next. Right. Wordsmithing for me at that point is like uh, taking a, piece of sandpaper to to wood before I have actually finished all of my carving. You know, it's like, why polish this when I don't even know if I'm going to keep that chunk? So I always do my language pass later. You know, I, I also practice so that hopefully I write fairly cleanly, but, but I don't worry about wordsmithing. So for me, what I'm looking for is story flow, and I'm looking for emotional development and arc and and making sure that all the pieces are there that I need. So what that gets down to usually when I'm in a scene and it feels kind of wishy-washy and I'm not certain about what's going on is that I take a moment and I look at both the overall structure of the story, which is, okay, I need to get my character to this point. And usually what's happened is that the thing that I need to do to get them to that point doesn't make emotional sense in that scene. It's like a stupid thing for my character to do. And so I either have to back up and plant some stuff to make it an intelligent decision, or I have to decide that I'm going to go a different route so that I'm not having them do that stupid, stupid thing. (laughs) Usually what I look for is I think about what is the most intelligent thing that my character can do in this moment, and how can it go wrong? And then what happens? Well, then I make it go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Usually, I mean, seriously, most plot, honestly, breaks down to your character wants something and you, the author, systematically deny it to them. Okay. Yeah, I like it. So uh, technically that makes the author the antagonist. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, let's be Ultimately. very clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's a sadistic streak in every author. Okay, <laughs> good to know. Mark friends, mark that one down. <laughs> Do you ever pull? Um, I one of, one of the things that I that I play with all the time is the idea that everything that goes into my writing comes from my experiences in life, and you know after writing 80,000 words, suddenly I'm like, oh my God, I haven't lived very much because I feel like I'm out of experiences. Do you, <laughs> do you pull physicality and idiosyncrasies that you have to create with puppets into the characters in your work? Like, does, is there a crossover between these two things? Oh, yeah. But uh, at the same time, I also pull physicalities into the puppetry that I've seen in real life. You know, for me, experience comes from a lot of different places. A lot of it is the stuff that I've actually lived through, and a lot of it is the stuff that I've witnessed. So uh, going to see plays, you get to watch a lot of body language and a lot of character choices that are being made very deliberately. You know, acting, film, books, all of these things are, are ways of picking up different experiences without actually having to, you know, like be buried in a coffin on your own. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bonus on that point. Yes, yes. definitely. Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. Definitely. One thing that I noticed when I was looking at some of the descriptions that other people have of your work is we work a lot on this podcast with with genre mashups, and we constantly are talking about genre, 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 but it almost seems like you've taken a couple of genre elements and pushed them into the realm of literary fiction in the way that your work is described. And that's a whole new thing for, at least for me, and I don't know about for Dave, in terms of, you know, we, we try to avoid literary fiction like the plague, but it looks like you're bridging that gap. Is, is that a difficult thing to do? I don't think so. Because <laughs> you're not doing it consciously? Probably. Oh, well, I mean, the, the Jane Austen plot mold thing that I did with Shades of Milk and Honey was very much a conscious choice. And it was actually really hard to not let some of the fantasy tropes creep in. Like, I had to res really, really resist the urge to have an evil overlord. Right. <laughs> and the big adventurous quest. Right. But, but in terms of fitting things into a literary plot mold, I mean, for me, the, the fiction that I'm most interested in is fiction that tells me more about how characters relate to each other. And I don't read literary fiction. So if I'm doing it, I'm doing it by accident. What I read is science fiction and fantasy. And so I think that there's actually quite a bit of science fiction and fantasy that would fit neatly into the literary plot mold, or, you know, into the, 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 the literary tropes, I should say. So it, if I'm doing it, it is not on a conscious level. Let, let me ask, Mary, and, and I don't mean to like call you out or anything, but you've said in other interviews that part of the reason that you've gone down this whole Regency, Jane Austen romance zone is because your agent said, let's do this and let's not blur your brand uh, as you first come out of the gate and start gaining an audience. Um, what do you really want to write? All of it. <laughs> All of it right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and that's one of the, one thing that I like about short fiction is it lets me play in a lot of different things. I sure. really enjoy writing in the Regency. I, uh, there's, you know, there's a spinoff series that I'm talking to my editor about that stays in the Regency. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. I don't want to do that for always, but I'm I'm certainly I don't feel like I'm being pigeonholed against my will. And this is this is something my agent and I talked about whether you know whether to go the Tad Williams route, which is to write all over the map, which is what I do in my short fiction, or to to stay in one area for a while. And I'm actually glad that I did, partly because of the um, 
you know, the, the audience building aspect. But the other thing is that it means that it is allowing me to work on story structure without having to keep doing world building. Each of the books that I've done, I've been kind of sneaky because like the first one is full on straight ahead Regency romance. Um, the second one, uh, Without a Summer, is in the middle of this, you know, Regency world. That's actually a spy novel. <laughs> uh, Without a Summer, when it comes, you know, which uh, has just come out by the time this airs, um, that is that is really secretly a political thriller. And uh, Valor and Vanity, which is book four, we've described that as Jane Austen writes Ocean's Eleven. It's a heist novel. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> so, you know, it's by not worrying about one area of craft, which is uh, world building and, and how you deal, you know, and, and new characters and all of that, by, by leaving, you know, staying with something that's familiar, that allows me to explore this whole other area so that when I start doing something else, you know, I'm like, all right, so I've done a heist novel. I know how those are structured. That means that now I can come up with a world and characters and do another heist novel or another political thriller or what have you. Sure. Sure. Now, but, but I guess my question, this is, this is a total novice newbie question. Cause I don't know. Do you feel that by the time you're at a point where you can start branching out, and I realize you're talking about branching into other sections of the Regency, but by the time you get to that fourth story, that fourth novel, Valor and Vanity, even though you're doing shorter fiction in other genres, do you feel that by writing novels in this format, in this structure, in this voice and tone, that that has somehow... I'm not going to say tainted you, but 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 soaked into your arterial voice in some way that maybe isn't desirable. Um, no. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> among other things, I've also written other novels during this time. Uh, ah, I have okay. a, a novel set in 1907 that we're shopping. Um, we have a, a science fiction murder mystery which I just finished. I wrote three novels last year. Oh wow! Basically, I write novels faster than my publisher can bring them out. <laughs> It's a really yeah. good problem to have. But f- for me, you know, I'm certain that there are things from the Regency that show up in other books. And, and I can't, you know, that there are times when I would jump straight from working on one of the Regency things into the science fiction murder mystery. And I'm like, oh, look how long my sentence structure has suddenly gotten. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So it's, it really is like almost like throwing a switch as you move from one genre to the other. Yeah. But the thing is, again, this is my training from my theater background is that I was were always, always working in someone else's style because I was having to collaborate all the time and having to switch up what it was that I was doing. So switching from one to the other is not that big of a deal. And I was doing it in short fiction as well. So I know that there are influences, but I also know how to reset for what I'm doing next. And one of the things that I do to reset is uh, shift what my intake is. Like when I'm working on the Regency stuff, I do a lot of reading of Jane Austen and other things from the period, nonfiction and stuff like that. When I do the murder mystery, I pick up Heinlein and I pick up other things. Um, I watch a lot of Mae West for this particular project. So I pick up other things to reset the voice. Because, you know, we, we always code switch. That's all that this really is. And we do this naturally as speakers, like the way you speak to your mother is very different from the way you speak to a coworker <laughs> or a buddy or a kid. Sure. And all yeah. of that is just code switching and rhythm changes. And it's the same thing as an author. You switch based on what you're writing and who the audience is and the story that you have to tell. 
What is your take on authors who feel the need to use a pseudonym if they get too far outside of what their audience is used to getting from them? Well, that's gonna, that varies a lot from uh, author to author and the reasons for doing that. I can understand why some authors choose to brand themselves. It certainly makes it easier to market. Um, my own feeling is for my career and what I want and, and the way I read you know, so speaking also as as a reader, um, I find it kind of silly. You know, I, I don't expect sure. George Clooney to change his name because he's suddenly doing a comedy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. God, we, we could we could totally riff on that for hours and hours. <laughs> uh, that that's that's a good point. Let me let me just in, we're running out of time here. Let me just interject one quick question uh, from the Twitter sphere, Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and this is from uh, Alexandre Maki from Brazil. Um, he says, even though I am not into Austin Regency or romance, uh, I've read Shades of Milk and Honey and actually enjoyed it because you are such a terrific writer. But will I enjoy the rest of the series? What do the other books have to offer to someone like me? Um, I hope that if you enjoyed the first one, that, that the elements that, uh, that you like in the first one stay around in the seconds. They get significantly more swashbuckling as they go along <laughs> because I am... You know, I am a science fiction and fantasy reader, and it was very difficult to write for me to, to write something without um, without sword fights. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to say action, but I didn't want to insult. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, that was also interesting because I did have to. Um, Jane Austen has sword fights and duels and horse chases in her sure. novels, but they all happen off stage. Right. All, all the all the reader gets is the aftermath. Right, because her characters are not, you know, are usually not in a place where they can witness these things. So recognizing, again, this is code switching, um, recognizing that a modern reader will be really annoyed if someone walks in and says, well, I've just had a thrilling duel. (laughs) (laughs) No, out of character completely, inappropriate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be annoying. So, um, so I, I switched things up to to get things in there but but yeah the, the series gets significantly more swashbuckling well and can you and you can almost see that in the in the covers i mean the first cover was was very much you know a, a period art piece mm-hmm. the the cover for was it glamour and glass the second one mm-hmm. uh that was a realistic you know lovely woman poised in the in the in the drawing room then book three comes out uh without a summer and there's a handsome dude in the in the image i can't wait to see the picture the cover for for valor and vanity yeah, I have no idea what it's going to be, but but I will tell you that there's a gondola chase, and I'm really hoping. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Very, very cool. Well, Mary, the clock that we have just took a, a snifter of snuff, uh, turned up its nose at me, and and challenged me to a duel. Um, so I'm, I'm going to assume that means we're out of time. Uh, thank you so very much for, for making the time. Uh, th- this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. absolutely. Brian, Brian, what do you, what do you take? away from this one man you know i got two things that that stood out to me one absolutely was the george clooney thing because i've been really playing with the whole pseudonym not that i want a pseudonym but but just the idea that you know you don't want to alienate an audience that may follow you over to something that they're not ready for but i love the idea that you know you can switch things and and actors do it all the time and we don't you know, it's it, it opens us up to new things. The other thing was um, that you don't necessarily need authentic life experiences. Go to plays and read books, and 
you know, live vicariously in terms of the experiences that you can collect to, to help inform your writing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually going to steal one of yours because the, the whole Clooney thing really stuck in my mind, yeah. uh, but for a different, for a different reason. Um, uh, the notion that, you know, Clooney is an actor. And so you expect actors to see different things. I, I think audiences these days are getting more sophisticated. So rather than evaluating an author by their content, they're sure. actually evaluating the author as the individual because now with, with the cyber culture and social media and so on, we can actually engage with the author through yes. something other than their actual fiction. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need a pseudonym because I know it's all Brian Humphrey or it's all Mary Robinette Kowal or whatever. Right. Um, so, and, and the other thing that stuck for me was, was that it should get harder. Not only does it get harder, but it should get harder. And that's not a bad thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, and that's, that I think is, is, is a good and, and, and hearty thing to grasp onto as, as you and I both move forward in this, in this, in these treacherous, treacherous waters. And that puppetry is awesome. Puppetry is awesome <laughs> and badass. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and informs literature yeah um dear friends thank you as always for tuning in we so appreciate you closing that circuit for us giving us someone to talk to uh alexandre thank you for your excellent question we appreciate that now friends here's the deal in just a couple of days we're gonna have mary back and and all of that wonderful aesthetic all those very diverse experiences and insights that she brings to the table are going to be put to the test as we workshop an awesome, awesome story. So please do return to us in that couple of days. Uh, between now and then, there's a variety of things that you can do. You can blog about us. You can drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. You can go out to iTunes and, and leave a review. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for those of you who have. Uh, you just make it that much easier for those that haven't found the roundtable to discover us because in iTunes, if you do a search for roundtable podcast, podcast you are going to find not us <laughs> <laughs> so we need more reviews yes please, <laughs> please. oh god i'm just gonna need to change the name of the podcast uh but that's still like i say a couple of days brian what do you think aside from all that what should they be doing they need to go right ah well yes there is that of course add your awesomeness to the world by writing your stories dear friends you find what you're looking for so look for awesome look for wow and you will find it i promise you we will see you in in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means do not sell it, but you can share it all you want. And you can even use pieces of it in your own production as long as you release that production under the same licensing terms and attribute us as the source. This particular episode was produced by Lucy LeBlanc. Theme music provided by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you want to be a guest writer or guest host, or just learn more about the Roundtable podcast, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also out on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.